0: Welcome back to the Savage Land. It's a wonderful day here. We've got another creator interview. Uh, it's a special, 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 special today. Uh, we have, as we talked about last week on the uh, on the episode, we have Brian Hill this week. He is the writer of Postal, uh, Eden's Fall, Romulus, and many other comics, mostly for Top Cow. Uh, Brian, welcome on the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me, Jason.
0: Yeah, no problem at all. Uh First, I wanted to ask, and actually, you mentioned something right before the interview that uh, that I'll want to touch on because it was something I didn't know about you. Um, but you you are kind of a in your like descriptions and bios on a lot of things. You're a pretty kind of brief guy. I mean, you look in the back of any Top Cow book that you've written, and your bio is like basically two sentences long. Was that something that uh, was sort of a concerted thing for you, or did you just decide, screw it, I'm just gonna make the shortest bio anyone's got?
1: Well, I try to think about things from a reader's point of view. And to be honest, I rarely care about the extemporaneous details, you know, of a writer's background when I'm looking at a thing. And I just don't think about myself that much. (laughs) So whenever I'm faced with what's your biography, I just put the simplest thing I can and then let the work speak for itself. You know, Uh I mean. You know, I someone put me on Wikipedia, so I'm there. <laughs> so you can find out more there. You know, in this day and age, you Google somebody and you'll find out everything you need to know. Um, but I just yeah. tell people, yeah, you know, I write screenplays. I, I write comics. I live in Los Angeles. I'm bald.
0: <laughs> it didn't say you were bald, but thankfully there was a picture accompanying it. So uh... the picture.
1: So I'm bald. <laughs> and I'm wearing a kimono, I think, in that picture because I have a kimono. I have two kimonos, actually.
0: Do you? Was there uh, yeah. was there an inspiration behind the kimono purchases?
1: Well, I've been studying martial arts since I was a little kid. Um, So I uh, have a black belt in Taekwondo. I've studied Five Animal Shaolin and some Shotokan. And when I started studying Shotokan, I picked up a couple kimonos. I'm gonna pick up uh, Kendo actually this year. I'm gonna start training in that. Um, So, so basically,
0: what you're saying is, if like anybody listening right now, if they were for some reason considering trying to mug you in a dark alley sometime, probably
1: not a good idea. Well, except for Tom King, he used to work for the CIA, so he he's like Jason Bourne. <laughs> so, I know. So I, I say, listen, say, listen, I can you know I can probably hang with most people in comics except for <laughs> Greg Capullo and Tom King. I'm not messing with either of those boys.
0: Yeah, it's it's the whole Bat family. Something's messed up with those guys because I even heard about T- uh, Scott Snyder putting a like a bouncer in a headlock or something.
1: Yeah, they're all like you know kind of cut <laughs> from the same cloth. Like like Greg Capullo, he's built like Bane.
0: Yeah, that guy scares
1: me. <laughs> yeah, so you don't really want him putting you over his knee, you know. Like, just leave that alone. But, uh, um, yeah, you know, I, I feel pretty safe at most comic book conventions. But you never know, man. Sometimes people can look look small, but they're scrappy.
0: Yeah, I, no, it's very true. It's very true. I feel like for some reason, and I don't know why this is, but for some reason, when you look at like the DC Bat Family, and then also the top guys, like you and or top cow guys, you and Matt. Uh, all of you guys are like pretty big, like you have a pretty big presence in a room when you walk in. I don't know what the deal is. I mean, I haven't met you in person, but obviously considering all the things that <laughs> that you just said,
1: uh, sounds, yeah, sounds well, like, you know, difference. when I, when I started, I didn't start off wanting to be a writer. When I, um, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an FBI agent. Oh, wow. I thought I was going to go catch bad guys. I, I read Red Dragon by Thomas Harris when I was about 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And I just really wanted to join the FBI and catch sociopaths and be Will Graham, you know, do the whole thing. Yeah. And my mother wouldn't allow me to do that. Like, I kept that dream going until the senior year of high school. And my mom realized that I was serious about it. And then she had an intervention. She's like, <laughs> Brian, listen, you can do anything you want. Just don't have a gun be involved at all. <laughs> so I was like, well, I like Star Wars and I like comics. <laughs> Can't go to school to be a Jedi uh-huh, that's I'll, true. I'll go to film school. Film school is good, right? Yeah. So then I went to NYU, and um, I went to NYU for filmmaking. Wow. Uh, and I, you know, I made a couple short films there, but it was incredibly expensive to make films. Then yeah. we were still shooting on film. Like yeah. now you can shoot something on an iPhone and you'll be all right. But back then we were shooting on 16 millimeter, 8 millimeters, It was like $1,000 a minute. Yeah. So I wound up doing more writing. Because writing was essentially free, and I was so broke mm-hmm. in college yep. that I spent my time with a pencil and a, and a legal pad. I remember having to sneak in to the computer room at NYU uh-huh. to write, to type out what I wrote in a legal pad into script format so I could finish drafting my <laughs> scripts. And I, I used to intern for Playboy magazine at the time, Okay, so... I would get free magazines. So what I used to do was hand out free copies of Playboy magazine for access to the computer lab uh-huh. and some paper, and then go in there and hand and type everything that I hand wrote to kind of you know get through the screenplays. Uh, and uh-huh. that was most of my uh, well this, this like the last two years of NYU were pretty much spent like that. I mean I was broke, Jason. I was like <laughs> I was living in a room in someone's apartment in Harlem because I couldn't afford the dorms. Wow. And Harlem is 125th street. NYU is on eighth street. I couldn't afford the subway. So I would walk, I would walk from 125th street to eighth street. I get up at six o'clock in the morning and I would walk downtown and I'd wind up at my first class, like around eight 45, nine o'clock. Uh, and yeah, yeah, it was, I mean, I I had to finish. I was like, I'm going to finish school. I'm crazy broke, I have no time to really have a job, so you know I just did odd jobs when I could, and, yeah. and cut corners whenever I could, ate one meal a day. You'd be surprised at how full a two-liter bottle of ginger ale will make you feel <laughs> if you need to be full.
0: Wow, that is, that is a long walk to do every day to school. That is ridiculous.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I, I I like to say these things on podcasts because I know there's a lot of people who listen to these things that yeah. want to be creators and and they they wonder how you do it and it all looks you know sort of not easy but it's it looks like people may have never gone through those things uh-huh. and anyone who's listening right now that is just struggling with the faith in themselves to continue to go just realize like, like I had the same thing too I mean I wanted to quit. Many, 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 many times before sure. I started getting a little bit of success. And so it just takes time, yeah. you know, I just knew that, like, this was all going to pay off uh, eventually or that's... I was going to become a supervillain. <laughs>
0: hey, I mean, it still could happen, you know,
1: still could happen, <laughs> still could happen.
0: Uh, that, that's crazy. So, I mean, and you, you kind of casually dropped a, a little bomb there that you got into NYU's film program. And for those who don't know, that is that is a very tough film program to get into. Were you, yeah, well, uh...
1: yeah, I, I was, I was kind of dumb. <laughs> I didn't realize how difficult USC and NYU were to get into. So, yeah. uh, in my infinite 18 year old wisdom, I only applied to USC and NYU. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and, and I got the rejection letter from USC first. Huh? And I'm like, well, if I don't get into NYU, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> and, uh, I happened to get into NYU and I'm like, I guess that's where I'm going to go. I, I don't know what possessed me to do that? Like the hubris that I I live with in my teens? Well, you know, luckily I did get into one of them. Yeah. Uh, But but I'll say this. To anyone who's like applying to these schools or uh, maybe you applied and didn't get in, listen, it's not the program. It's the student. You know, it's what I learned when I was in the the program was you can't teach Martin Scorsese how to be Martin Scorsese. You can't teach Spike Lee how to be Spike Lee. You know, these people were going to be filmmakers no matter Mm -hmm. what. NYU gave them access to equipment and to the uh, the kind of film history education yeah. they needed to practice their craft. But now you don't need that anymore. See, when I was going to school, you no, know, we didn't have the kind of digital access to films we have today. Like I didn't have Netflix when I was in film school. <laughs> right? yeah. So, you know, I had to kind of chase down these movies and see these movies. So now you can just get the AFI 100. It's a list of the uh, American Film Institute's greatest films ever made. Uh So you just go to the website, look at the list of films, and just watch every single one of them on streaming or wherever you can watch them. Take notes. Um, Sometimes, you know, if you have access to the discs and they have the commentary, then watch them with the commentary. You can learn some things from those. But that will be as much of an education as, you know, going to film school would be. It's, It's strange. I mean, I have people that ask me a lot. Oh, hey, man, you know, uh, how do I get in film school? I get in film school. And I say, hey, don't really have to go now. Yep. Take the money you would spend in film school and said, go to like a good state school where you get a, get a scholarship or you get some tuition assistance and you won't have all the debt that I had coming out of NYU. <laughs> and <laughs> take the balance of the money and shoot some films, you know, yep. get a little camera and get a camera for less than a grand. Um, mm-hmm. That's pretty good you know, I mean, most summer jobs will pay for that. Yeah. So you uh, you buy that camera, and then you just shoot some stuff with your friends, you know, just shoot some shots and cut some stuff together in your computer, just get used to making films. It's as much of an education as you're going to get in film school.
0: Yeah. And I mean, wh- one thing that I found, I, I went to two years of, of film school just at a university in, in Utah. And uh, I left because I was, you know, working full time to to pay for the tuition. And then, you know, like classes got to a point where I wasn't able to uh, take any of the main film classes because of my work schedule, basically. Um, right. And so I decided, well, and I, I found out through some website that USC just has like crap tons of their, uh, you know, lectures and coursework and everything just online for free that you can learn from and use. You just don't get, you know, the college credit for it. Um, yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, like I, for me, like I just spent, I, you know, left school after two years and then just spent another two years of my life just doing USC coursework on my computer at home. And, like, that was super educational. And you're right. Like, the Internet and and just modern technology in general, like you were talking about with, with digital film and people making movies on their iPhones and stuff, like, it's made it so much more possible for people to to follow their passions. I mean, not just in film or in anything, you know, creative, but really just anything they're passionate about.
1: Yeah, just take the, you know, take take your money and buy yourself a 4K television. <laughs> And then buy yourself an Xbox One, because that has a 4K DVD player in it. Yep. And just watch stuff. Just watch stuff on Amazon, watch stuff on Netflix, take notes, you know, uh, look at the online courses that are out there. There's so many resources that exist now that didn't exist when I was, uh, you know, first thinking about going into school. Like, YouTube wasn't the resource that it is right now.
0: Hey, everybody. uh, I just wanted to butt in here because audacity the program that i use to record these interviews uh had a bit of a brain fart while we were recording and apparently there's this thing called the moon phase bug within audacity where once every i don't know a few hundred times it records something it'll just decide not to keep the audio files that it just recorded or just wrote uh and so what we ended up with was about three or four minutes here uh of audio that just vanished out of the recording uh, I don't know why this bug exists or why it hasn't been fixed. I'm still researching that. Uh, however, we missed a great story from Brian talking about the first comic that he read and uh, dealing with the loss of his father. It was a fantastic story. Um, and next time that he's on, I'll I'll see if we can uh, get him to tell that story again because I think it's something that would be great for uh for all of you to hear. Um, however that's what happened and it doesn't seem that there's any way to record that audio or to recover that audio rather. And if there ever is, if I find a way to recover that audio, uh, I will certainly post it immediately. Um, but yeah, uh, now I'll kick it back to Brian. He is answering a question about the comparisons of, uh, how he feels it is harder to break into comics than it was for him to break into uh film. So here he is.
1: But comics is really, really nutty. It's just, uh, um, there's this big, big kind of wall between you and the industry uh, when you first start out. So it took me probably, man, 12 years or something, wow. I think, before I really broke in. Uh, I had sold a screenplay and moved out to L.A. No, well, no, before I, before I sold that script, uh, or around the same time, Ron Mars, the writer on Witchblade, mm-hmm. met me. And uh, took a liking to some of my work. And Rob Levin, who was an editor at Top Cow at the time, he saw some of my work and hired me to do a short story uh, or something in, um, in, in one of the Top Cow Witchblade trades. Mm-hmm. And from there, I got a chance to work with Rob on a miniseries for Top Cow called Broken Trinity, uh, Pandora's Box, I think. It's a six-issue thing. And it's about two sort of tertiary characters in the top cow universe. One of them turns into an ice giant. The other one turns into a dragon. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that got me started, uh, initially, you know, that was kind of the first, you know, thing I did. And then, uh, you know, there's a dry spell for a number of years. And then eventually I think, um, I did seven days from hell, a one shot as part of top cows pilot season. Then I had lunch with Matt, and Matt brought up this idea of Wholesale and asked me if I um, – I sold a screenplay or two by then, and he asked me if I was interested in, in working on it with him. And honestly, you know, Jason, when he gave me the idea, I didn't know where the story was. <laughs> I was like, there's a town, a mailman, and there's a mail – does he does there a ninja in there? Does he fight? <laughs> does he have to, oh, he has to fight to get the mail, right? They're trying to get the mail. He has to fight them to, to – no? No, he doesn't have to fight the mail, huh? <laughs> And I, I so I opened up a, a like an old copy I had of Truman Capote's *In Cold Blood*, mm-hmm. and I read that. It's like kind of this you know Southern baked crime fiction sort of thing. Uh, crime. It's not really fiction. It's it's true story, but Capote wrote it uh, as a as best you know, as, as book. Mm-hmm. And I, I read that, and started to find like my way in. Then I read some Cormac McCarthy, and uh, got a little bit more into okay, Little Blood Meridian, all the pretty horses, a little bit of the road sort of figured out how to tell this nihilistic crime story uh, sort of vibe and came at Matt with uh, about two pages of this is what I would do with the story and he agreed and then we worked on the first eight issues of Postal together mm-hmm. and after that he kind of set me free to do whatever I wanted
0: oh wow so what and and there there's a lot like there's a lot over the course of that story there's a lot that I want to unpack uh but for Postal, co-writing with Matt, had you co-written with somebody before on anything? Or was that the first time that you sort of co-wrote a project?
1: Oh, I'd co-written something with Rob. So the, those, uh, the Broken Trinity miniseries okay. I co-wrote with Rob.
0: Co-wrote with and, him. And
1: co-writing always is a different experience kind of every time you do it. You know, in, in the case of Postal, mm-hmm. it was a lot of getting all of what Matt wanted out of his head. And just figuring out, okay, how to plant that into story structure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he had some characters, and I added a few more, and maybe I added a little dimension to the characters that existed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we we were kind of forming the world and its potential and the rest of it while we were working on the first eight. And then I started to get fluent in it. You know, they they started talking to me in my head, and and, uh, they became three-dimensional people. And once Matt saw that, he's just like, yeah, man, you should just go ahead and and do this. (laughs) Yeah. You seem to have a really strong handle, you know, on, on how this all goes. I mean, he still over oversees, like, what I do. And if I want to do something truly crazy, he'll be like, no, don't do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> have, but, uh,
0: have you had yeah. a case where uh, where he's shot something down that you've uh, wanted to put into Postal?
1: Not really shot down. I, I had a case where he asked me to postpone a story mm-hmm. um, and tell a little bit later in the series. There's a character named Rowan who used to be uh, a skinhead. He was a part of the Aryan Brotherhood. Mm-hmm. And he's moved into the town to kind of turn over a new leaf. He's kind of your classic. I used to be a black hat. Now I don't wear any hat and I'm just dealing with the, the, the guilt of what I've done sort of character version yeah. of Western, you know, uh, in that mode. And I wanted to do a story that was solely focused on him and him dealing with some demons from his past. Mm-hmm. And I remember I turned the script in. I wrote the whole script, turned it into Matt and Matt just was like, Hey, can we do this one later in the series than right now? Um, <laughs> you know it it was i forget which issue it is it's uh, it's in the third arc so the third mm. trade it's in there and it, it's just so pinpoint focused on that character and that character's culture and and all of that i think he just didn't want to uh, make the book an Aryan brotherhood book yeah. too early yeah. into the thing but uh it it's in there in its full form later on he never edited the issue he never said know take these words out or mm-hmm. change these panels uh he always let me do it he just wanted me to do it a little bit later that makes and sense. And i have to apologize to your listeners if you hear my puppy whining in the background <laughs> uh it's it's just you know if my puppy does that i will try to keep him calm
0: it's fine i uh i i haven't heard anything yet and and we always welcome dogs on our show so it's totally right fine um that that's interesting and and it is something that I've kind of noticed across, uh, not only across the things that you've written, but also across Top Cow in general, especially in recent years, uh, that their books typically uh, can really delve into kind of those things that people might be afraid to talk about or explore. And in talking, especially like in, in bringing up Postal and, you know, the sort of like Aryan Brotherhood and dealing with that background, how do you... How do you approach writing something like that that obviously can be so, you know, obviously is, is abrasive and and horrible and, you know, things that don't necessarily get deeply explored as much? How do you approach writing about that?
1: Well, you know, uh, when you're a writer, the the beautiful thing is everybody will talk to you, you know, <laughs> no matter kind of what they do. You just say you're right, especially if they can Google you, if they can find you on Google, mm-hmm. anyone will talk to you. So with that story mm. in particular, I had a friend that I grew up with, who was a good friend of mine. He was an Irish kid. Mm-hmm. He was from the kind of the south side of St. Louis, where like the Irish Irish kids are. Yeah. And I, and I hadn't seen him for a long time, and I remember coming back to St. Louis, and I, I bumped into him randomly uh, in a store, and he was a skidhead. Mm. Like he had the eighty eight tattoos and the spider web on his elbow and the whole thing, right? Yeah. And this was a kid that I'd been over to his house. I like knew his parents. I'd petted his dog. Like we had like a little bit of a background. Wow. And I was just so shocked at it, and he looked very surprised to see me because I hadn't seen him in years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we didn't really have a like uh, a, a conversation there, but I still had his mom's contact. Yeah. So when I came back to my mother's house, I called his mom, and I'm like, "Hey, I just ran into so and so." People take turns in life, huh? And yeah, she's like, mm-hmm. you know, we've had like some problems, and you know, we we're trying to work it all out. And I was like, "Yeah, that's okay." could you reach out to him and ask him if you wanted to go grab a beer somewhere? It doesn't mm-hmm. have to be somewhere where he hangs out, where his friends can see him. Like we can go to a neutral spot. I'm not going to yell at him. I'm just genuinely curious. Yeah. So a couple of days later, uh, he got back to me and we went out and we had this beer and I, you know, I wasn't like yelling at him or any of that. I was just curious about it. And he told me, you know, kind of how he wound up in this whole thing. And he spoke about the inequities of the system and you know, how he felt like, you know, nobody was looking out for people like him and, you know, uh, it was a lot of anti-establishment stuff. And so I was like, okay, that's, that's interesting. I can kind of, if not relate to it, I can, I can sympathize if I can't empathize. Mm -hmm. Um, and that sort of started it. And then from there I talked to more people in the Aryan Nation, Aryan supremacy, whatever you want to call it movement. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think they're always like curious to talk to a black guy, I guess they're wondering yeah. when the black guy is going to get really like confrontational, and I never really do. I don't have gotcha questions. I'm yeah, a writer. Yeah. You know? like, I'll, I'll talk to Lucifer if we'll sit down and have a cup. <laughs> of
0: <the laughs> That know? would be a good interview. Um,
1: right? Well, then I would be like Neil Gaiman. Right? Um, <laughs> there you go. Or like, I think Grant Morrison might actually talk to Lucifer. Yeah, Grant morrison uh,
0: oh, weird stories. Anyway,
1: I love, right? I love that guy. Know, His stories are insane. i will see if Lucifer could be in touch with Grant. <laughs> but, um... <laughs> Yeah, you know, and, you saw, and so, you know, whenever I engage the subject, my goal is never to preach. My goal is to engage. Yeah, right? and I wanted to tell a story about uh, redemption and the possibility of redemption. You know, there are a lot of things in society that, hmm, kind of put a scarlet letter on you forever. You yeah. know, and I think being a violent racist is probably one of them.
0: <laughs> Absolutely.
1: But coming from Missouri, where I'm not very far from a lot of those movements, yeah, I, I wanted to tell a story about a about a guy, and and not soften what the guy had done, um, who he used to be, but just present the question to the reader uh, about the possibility of redemption. Yeah, you know, um, could we invest in this guy again? Could this guy be forgiven? Um, how could he forgive himself? All those things. So yeah, that's kind of where I I approach it. You know, I don't do things that are provocative just because i touch taboo subjects like mm-hmm. that's not that's not interesting to me yeah but what uh what is interesting to me is you know how can i engage these things um in a way that's authentic but also says something about all of our lives yeah And is isn't just a window into some strange strange kind of you know verboten world but it's also a mirror into the kind of people we are and the human experience in general you know
0: yeah and that's uh, that's something that I find fascinating uh, about Postal is, you know, the the concept itself, I think, lends so much to being able to explore, uh, you know, sort of human social structures and society and things like that, because you've got this town where it's basically a, a safe haven for people who have done really horrible stuff, you know, and uh, a second chance. And I think that that's I don't know. That's 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 such an interesting uh, thing to to allow you to sort of explore those things. Um,
1: Well, you know, it's I I talked to some folks that had committed felonies, some of them violent crimes and what have you. Mm -hmm. And when they when they come out of prison, it's hard for them to matriculate back into common society. Right. Because they have done things that we as society may never forgive. It's hard to find jobs. I used to work for a welfare to work program. I was uh, adult education. Mm-hmm. A teacher there, and I was there for about I mean, uh, five months or so. and it it was it saddened me to see how people who wanted to rejoin society just didn't have that options. And you started to understand how people got second and third string, right? Like you started to see, okay, I get it, because no one will hire you. Uh, it's hard for you to socialize. Mm-hmm. You wind up going back to your old contacts and your old ways. And the only way you know how to get a living wage is by doing something illicit because those are the only opportunities that are in front of you. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, and I, I worked hard on trying to figure out how to help these folks break the cycle. Right? Yeah. Like, how do you kind of keep them out of there? And the myth of just, well, you just have to work hard and then everything. there. It's not always like that. So with Postal, I engage a lot of that experience. You know, most of what I write is tied into some sort of life experience um, in some way. Mm-hmm. In some way. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm not like a. Master Assassin, twenty-two year old girl <laughs> like Ash, Arn Romulus, right? Yep. Like that's not uh, that's that's not what I what I do. But but I have met people that uh, have been part of secret societies. I've studied secret societies myself, so a lot of those ethics kind of come from that stuff. So I'm always looking for where's the reality, you know, in this, um, just to inform me so I have somewhere I can ground myself. Yeah. Uh, you know, obviously some things are so fantasy that you're not going to find, you know, Amazonian warriors that will uh, come and save us in in high-heeled boots, probably. (laughs) Probably. But you could talk to some professional female athletes to get their perspective on discipline, dedication, what have you. Like, martial artists are great. So if if I was doing, like, a Wonder Woman thing, I would talk to my friends that are stunt women. I would talk to my friends that are professional athletes and tennis players, all that, um, and find out, like, kind of what drives them, you know, in the gym. um, Where where does that ethos come from? And put some of that in Diana. There's always some kind of way to anchor it in experience somehow
0: and that th- that's interesting and and uh one of the thing i i was wondering while we're on the subject of uh of postal is and you talk about kind of writing from experience uh with writing a character who has asperger's how how was that for you you know sort of approaching that or trying to get into kind of the the psyche and the behavior of of a character like that
1: well you know when Matt mentioned, that was Matt's idea to have Mark be on the uh, the autism spectrum, and yeah. so I I do the same thing I always do. I went to YouTube. I saw some videos. There were video journals of people who've been um, you know diagnosed in that spectrum, talking about their life experiences, and I watched a bunch of them. I reached out to a few of them and said, "Hey, can we do a Skype? I have a couple questions. I'm working on a thing. I want to serve it well. Would you you know mind taking a little bit of time?" And I and I would get on these uh, these video conferences and just speak to folks and just get their experience, uh, and that helped inform a lot of what I was uh, you know going to write in the book. And I, I realized that it's not like some USA Network you know I have Asperger's so I can solve the crime because I can't read your emotions, but I can smell the you know whatever. Yeah. It's it, and that's like where the head goes, right? It's like, well, everything's a superpower on TV. Yep. Um, And it's not that way. It's, you know, they're not Vulcans. You know, it's not like they have a completely different sense of everything than we do. They're just unable to read emotion the same way we read it. Yeah. And And so I just put some of that isolation inside of Mark and... And, and that feeling I think we all share when we, when our inner world is much more active and vibrant than our outer world, mm-hmm. and we don't quite know how to bridge the two. You know, I think um, a lot of people, they have these rich, interesting, vivid inner lives. Uh, these, I, I not imagined selves, because it's a true self. It's just a self that most people don't see. Yeah. Then when they get into the other world, the real world of interaction, the outside world, there's some kind of disconnect. And uh, that self doesn't really manifest the way they would like it to. And that's a universal thing, you know, I, I think. So uh, I, I try to make the specific universal and make sure that I'm not rendering any character into caricature. Mm-hmm. And the best way I can do that is just by talking to people who've experienced some things.
0: Yeah, and avoiding the Big Bang Theory, I assume, as well.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, look, there's a, there's a, look, there's a time and a place for that, you know. I mean, like, there's, I think, ten seasons of that thing. Everybody there can buy a Ferrari factory if they want to. (laughs) So, I don't want to bemoan that stuff. But when you have something like Postal that isn't a comedy, that is uh, uh, character driven, it's kind of a drama. Yeah, you want to make sure that there's enough dimension in there. You don't want anyone rendered into a gimmick Mm. in the middle of the serious thing, right? Like that's always the thing. You don't want Hey, all these characters are like, well thought out, you know, interesting, multi dimensional characters, except this guy, he's a gimmick, you know, uh, I think the same way about female characters, you know, you don't want your female characters to just be the pretty girl, you mm-hmm. know, or, or the, the, here's the, here's the mean hot one. Here's the nice hot one, <laughs> you know, no shade at Archie. I'm yeah, just saying, I was about I'm, to... just making, I'm just making a point, you know, <laughs> no angry emails. Yeah. Uh, you know, angry angry tweets at Brian Overhill, you know, on Twitter. Like, I'm just saying, I have nothing wrong with Betty or Veronica. I like them both fine. Mm-hmm. But there tends to be that kind of uh, false dichotomy, I think, when it comes to a lot of female characters. So, again, yes. you're trying to figure out ways to make those characters um, uh, interesting and alive, you know. and And that's always the key. Like, how do I make this not not just a, a function in the story, but a, a living and breathing person that makes choices and then deals with the consequences of those choices.
0: Yeah. And uh, and I mean, on the subject of of female characters, I, I wanted to talk about uh, Romulus a bit. Your new book, it's you're on issue three, is out in stores now, correct? That's the most recent. Yeah, issue
1: one? four is on the way. It is, um, I think, maybe out next month, or if not, the month yeah. after. Follow me on Twitter at Brian Overhill. <laughs> I will let you know.
0: Yeah, I know I saw it in the solicits, but I can't remember which week. Um, and and so Romulus, and the, I mean, so far after three issues, I'm I'm freaking hooked on it. Um, but how did, how did the, the project or the story, I guess, come about? Where did that come from?
1: Oh, randomly, like most things that come out of this twisted head of mine. Um, <laughs> I was walking around LA and I saw a group of skateboarders and uh, one of the skateboarders was this really cool, uh, kind of razor chopped hair girl who's trying to nail this trick line for a video. They were doing a skateboard video because in LA, mm-hmm. they're always doing skateboard videos. Right? <laughs> yep. And it was downtown. It was a place called Pershing Square where there's a lot of good places you can run rails and the whole thing. Yep. And I'm watching them go, and she tried to get it and fell off, didn't get it. Tried to get it, fell off, didn't get it. Tried to get it, fell off, and kind of hit herself hard. Maybe, like, bent something the wrong way. You know, kind of made the wincing sound, hopped a little bit, shook it off, and then went back. And then she nailed it, like, a couple times later. Mm Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was really awesome, and she looked so cool. She was like this hyper athletic, you know. She had the razor chopped hair and her cool like jacket. And I'm like, man, this this is awesome. This moment I'm having is like an awesome, almost like '80s moment I'm having. <laughs> so I just went up to her and you know and and, and you know bought them all uh, some water uh, at the subway across the street from the uh for the thing, uh-huh. and just sat down and had a conversation. You know, like I always do, Jason. And <laughs> I got this vibe, you know. This is, she had like a really cool vibe, so yeah. I, I kept that in my head and always wanted to capture that inside of a story. Mm-hmm. So the artist Nelson and I, we go back a long time. He's been my friend for about twenty years. Yeah, uh, uh, and I said, hey man, I got this idea, and, you know, this girl, and I kind of want to do something where like she wants to do the right thing, but doesn't really know how and she gets beat up a lot but she'll kind of win in the end but she'll also lose something else and it's all about you know how to get back up after you got knocked down like what do you think it's like that's a great idea and then we were also talking about secret societies and mm. uh weird esoteric history because we we also do that yeah so we, we would have these three-hour conversations about you know the Bilderberg group or Bohemian Grove or any of that stuff. And not like in like weird Alex Jones, like I'm going to tell Chopani, you know, kind of, no, no, like we we're, were like this, this the, the high, the hide and plain sight aspects of history. Yeah. Right. Like I used to live very close to the Los Angeles library downtown. Great and library. for those who have not been to the downtown Los Angeles library, it is full of uh, Freemason occult symbology mm-hmm. all over the place because the guy who designed it was a guy named Bertram Goodhue. He was a Scotsman who was a Freemason and involved in a bunch of this esoteric stuff. Mm -hmm. So they put a lot of symbols everywhere. And you don't really pay attention to it until you're looking at it. And it's like an old place. Old places have old things. But once you start studying symbols and realize, that's the eye of a Horus, and why is it here? Yeah. And that's probably a Luciferian torch. Why is that here? And, you know, I just got really into this, Kind of world that's, you know, hiding in plain sight, like Mm -hmm. all around us, like, look at the back of our dollar bill. The back of our dollar bill is crazy. We have crazy (laughs) money in America. A lot of people don't see foreign money, but you should look up foreign money and then compare it to our money. Foreign money is like the head of an old person on the front, have an old person on the back. That's all it is. If you look at our money, the back of a dollar bill is just crazy. It's it's <laughs> like the scrawling of like a, a character in like, you know, Fringe or something. It's like, it's like yeah. something that would be on the prison wall, right? <laughs> and, and you look at that and you're like, all right, uh, people were into some weird stuff, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wanted to tell a story about secret societies and, uh, you know, their possible roles and how uh, world affairs are playing themselves out. You know, I, I think there's also kind of a, a fantasy in that you know kind of a a, a a comforting idea that there could be an insidious group behind the scenes actually controlling things yeah instead of like you know donald trump just being president cuz <laughs> you know you like you're like like you you, you want to feel like well clearly there's a the, the illuminati yeah. must be behind that right? there's a like, larger
0: <laughs> force at work there's a <laughs> reason for all this
1: couldn't just be that like the the reality show guy is president, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, that just can't happen, right? Yeah,
0: doesn't come about just on its own.
1: Yeah, you know, I, you know, I think when you th- start thinking about, like, the s- state of terrorism, something about crime, even the economy. Mm-hmm. You know, I, the, I think the, the nightmarish thing about the financial collapse was we kind of always thought that there'd be people that would stop that from happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> It's like oh no, it's there's possible. there's probably safeguards somewhere. Like someone's got it figured out. They'll they'll prevent right? it. Look
1: like aren't this. the people in like the robes supposed to come out and stop this from taking place? <laughs> <laughs> Why is my 401k empty now? Yeah. <laughs> like so so I think part of it is the the kind of the fantasy of being able to isolate these nefarious forces into a group. Um. Uh. You know, uh, sort of wrapped itself in there, and then and I just got together on it and decided to. Uh, you know, tell the story about Ashlar. Uh, and uh, it's been a, a lot of fun working on that book. You know, it's very different than Postal. It's much more athletic and kinetic yeah. than, than Postal is. Uh, but, you know, it kind of goes back to the other part of my nature, you know, which is like just the underdog fighting the bad guy. how do you do it? Um, it's not one of those kind of navel gazing kind of comic book experiences that you sometimes get, you know, from indie comics. And sometimes I'm in the mood for that. Sometimes I can just, Read a book where people are sitting on the couch talking about what they had for breakfast. I'm totally up for that. Yeah, but I wanted to do Romulus and um, kind of like a more sort of traditional. This is the kind of book I wanted to read when I was a kid.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So I mean, and I, I am curious because you 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 know we talking about secret societies and stuff like that. Um, and with the Illuminati playing such a big you know part in uh, in your book, I mean, do you do you have any thoughts on you know, sort of, I guess the, and I guess like we touched on a little bit, but the real world Illuminati and, and do you, do you feel like with your writing of the Illuminati in that book, is that similar to how you feel about the real world Illuminati or are you kind of like writing a sort of different version of that?
1: Well, you know, I have the Illuminati in the book and I also have the order of Romulus and yeah. they're sort of both secret societies just at the same time. Yeah. Uh, some of my friends are in the music industry and Within the music industry, there's this constant idea that the Illuminati has taken over pop music and hip-hop, right? (laughs) Like it's Katy Perry's in the Illuminati because she has all the symbols in her concert. Jay-Z's in the Illuminati because he makes the triangle with his hands, right? Yeah. So I I wanted to engage some of that thought there. You know, look, I was a scholarship kid to a pretty uh, rich kid high school growing up in Missouri. Mm Mm-hmm. And I met a lot of families that were legacy families that had a great deal of money. I, I can certainly say that very rich people tend to have plans for the rest of us. <laughs> 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 I, I can say that with 100% certain. Um, you know, and there's, there's some stuff that's kind of weird and clandestine. Like college fraternities have a pretty dark history if you look into it. Mm-hmm. Um the Bohemian Grove is a real thing. This is a meeting where a lot of rich people, influential people go into the forest in like northern California. They wear robes and they do some kind of ritual, right? This is totally real. This is not infowars. You can look it up. It's totally real. Now they'll mm-hmm. say it's just a tradition thing, and the word tradition makes a lot of questions go away. By the way, but like, <laughs> it's it? a tradition thing, and we do this. this, <laughs> this. And, but it's like it's not my family's tradition. Yeah. Like we have Memorial Day barbecues. <laughs> we don't stand around a giant burning owl. Like that's weird, right? <laughs> so, I mean, you know, does the Illuminati exist? I don't know. I mean, well, they did. I mean, there's a historical Illuminati, the Bavarian Illuminati. Yeah. You know, it was started by like uh, um, Adam Weishaupt in I think. I want to say, ooh, sixteen seventy something mm-hmm. maybe. Um, uh, and that Illuminati—they they existed to keep rationalism in the world because they were afraid that uh, the kind sort of religious influence—and by religious influence, it's more like the political wing of religion—was yeah. going to keep people from learning unfettered. And that Illuminati wanted people to be rational and be able to pursue rationalism. Mm-hmm. So they didn't become this, like, you know, so all governments in Western civilization had become superstitious, basically. Yeah, yeah. And we didn't have a, a bunch of pontiffs. So there was a real Illuminati. Now, you know, is that Illuminati selling Kanye West albums?
0: <laughs> is it run by the Rothschilds?
1: I, yeah, a, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I will say that really rich people are weird. <laughs> and they tend to all be weird in the same way. Take that as you will. <laughs> happens you know like yeah that's yeah your mileage may vary (laughs) yeah that's been my experience that really rich people are weird (laughs) that's
0: uh that that is that is fairly uh true to what i know about very rich people i don't i don't know tons of them but from the ones i've met they're they're very strange people um
1: so yeah, you know, it's different, man. Like it's just you know, when you have when you have enough money, where money isn't an option, mm-hmm. you live in a completely different universe than most people.
0: Yeah, I mean, most yeah. people, it's like the the consistent thought in your head is getting you know your your next paycheck or you know affording right. this and that. Like when that thought is completely eliminated, uh, you just
1: start worshiping <laughs> Lucifer. I don't. <laughs> Like, I'm I'm just playing very rich people. Don't get yeah. mad at me. I love you. I'm just telling jokes on podcasts. Yeah, don't, don't come at me. D- don't
0: call your squads, please.
1: Yeah, don't uh, send someone with like a chrome mask and a shotgun to come after me. Like, it's not that serious. <laughs> it's just a comic book. You'll be fine.
0: <laughs> um, Was there, so was it a, a concerted effort on your part to make sure that every issue of, at least thus far, every issue of Romulus is kind of loaded with that back matter content? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely for the first three, I wanted to um, seed some stuff in there so that people could engage it if they wanted to. You know, like, uh, honestly, Jason, comic books cost about five bucks these days. Yeah. You know, like, I think what, cover Price Romance is, what, three ninety nine. dollars yep, I think? that's correct. That's a sandwich, man. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's like a couple bottles of Coca-Cola or Coke Zero, you know, depending on, you know, your, your inclination. Mm-hmm. That's not a negligible amount of money. That's like DLC content for a video game, right? Yeah. So I think about that. Like, that matters to me. You know, when I was uh, dating myself again, but when I was growing up, comic books were an impulse buy. You could, like, get a Slurpee, get a Snickers bar, and, oh, I'm going to get this Batman comic book because it's going to cost me a buck. Yep. Now it's like four bucks, right? So four bucks plus tax is like five. That's a five-dollar bill. So. I I try to make sure that every single book I write is worth five bucks. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's my rule. I look at my issue, I look at my script, and I read it, and I'm like, is this better than a sandwich? (laughs) If I wanted a sandwich and someone gave me this, would I be mad at them? And if the answer is yes, I got to go back in there and I got to add some stuff. Yeah. So with Romulus, because you know it's like I created that thing, you know it's my kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I, I really wanted to provide readers value and give them some supplemental content that I thought was interesting. Um, some of its prose, some of its imagery, some of its a combination of both. Yeah, but I, I you know, I, I wanted to make the experience as uh, as fulfilling as possible, um, because it's just not as easy to pick up a comic as it used to be. Yeah, you know, I, I, have you heard of the twenty dollar rule? Uh, I haven't actually. Please tell me. So, twenty dollar rule is when a reader walks into a comic book store, they're generally willing to spend about twenty bucks. Mm. Um, they might spend a little bit more. But 20 bucks is kind of like, you know, eh, they might be willing to part with that. Yeah, yeah. 10 of those dollars are going to Marvel in DC. Oh, for sure. Just automatically. Yep. Right? So you're really competing for the other 10 bucks. Yeah. And that 10 bucks, that's two books mm-hmm. right there. You know, I mean, you're competing with all the image books, the Dark Horse books, Oni Press, whatever, and a lot of great books out there. Yeah. So I think you really have to make sure that you're, you're providing the reader uh, more than the cover price value. And I'm not going to name names, but there are books out there where I'm just like, y'all know this isn't worth
0: $4. Yeah. <laughs> you know.
1: You just know this isn't you, you put this out there, and you knew this wasn't worth 4 bucks, yeah. right? Yep. You know, some of the trade prices are even crazy right now. Oh, yeah. You know, like uh, like I, I was going to buy a Star Wars trade, and it was like $25. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what? What? I can buy the video game for 50 <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like I'm not going to – so – I, I try to be cognizant of, of this stuff, you know. I, I um, if it was up to me and the price points made sense, I would sell all my books for a dollar each, right?
2: Yeah,
1: uh, but you know, there's printing costs and shipping costs, and you know, in all that, you've got to got to recoup. Yep. But um, it's not as cheap as yeah, it used to be. I just, you know, I, I just try to make sure that if I have the space to do some back matter stuff, that there's something cool in there, like the issue four. Doesn't have additional Romulus matter, but it has a pretty cool sneak preview of Matt Hawkins's new book Samaritan. Oh yeah, that's that's based on um his Tithe universe. Mm-hmm. Yep, so we got a few pages of that in there. Attilio Rojo did the art for that, and it's really cool. So you get like a little extra narrative stuff in there. You know, it's um value is important. Uh, as much as I'm a creator uh, and a professional, I'm still a customer yeah. too, and I don't like it when I feel like I didn't get a lot for my money. So I try to make sure I never give a reader that feeling.
0: Yeah, no, and that's, I, I think it's great, I mean, and, and I think that there there is a lot to that. I've also, you know, obviously, like, with, with the previews for, you know, other comics and stuff, I think that's awesome, especially for image books, you know, because Marvel and DC have an advantage where, you know, they can throw a character, you know, like, they can throw, you know, Squirrel Girl into an issue of Iron Man or whatever if they want people to go out and find Squirrel Girl, but right. for the most part, image books exist in their own universe, and so... You can't just have, you know, I mean, obviously, you guys have done it a couple times at Top Cow. Uh, but for the most part, you can't really have like a crossover or, you know, any kind of.
1: Yeah, input. we don't, you know, you don't get like, you can't just like throw Bruce Wayne into a couple pages of this thing. And then, you know, yeah, people will pick it, pick it up just to be completionists, right? It, exactly. Um, and so yeah, it's a competitive market. There's a lot of really, really good books out there. I mean, you know, Jonathan Hickman's uh uh, doing awesome stuff. yeah. Uh, you know, uh, you know, um, uh, Remender's book, Killer Be Killed. Mm-hmm. That's a, um, a really, really great book. And that's just off the top of my head. A couple of ones. I mean, uh, Don Blake his God country is an excellent book. Like there are so many brilliant, um, books out there yeah. that, you know, you, you just, it's a highly competitive market now. And just being a good book, I don't think is enough. Mm-hmm. You've got to be a good book of surpassing value. It's one of the things I like a lot about Isaac Goodhart, the artist on postal. Yeah. Postal is not an easy book to draw. No, because you, you don't get the DPS double page spread. You don't get a lot of splash pages. There isn't a lot of inherent kineticism. A lot of it's just people talking to each other. You know, yeah. it kind of has, uh, and it's deliberate on my part. It has a bit of like a late '90s Azzarello sort of feel.
0: Yeah, um, I was noticing you know, To that. the whole thing. Yeah, uh,
1: but that can be difficult for an artist to do to make interesting. And Isaac does a really incredible job of. Depicting subtleties in human emotion mm-hmm. and making these these scenes work and finding the cool where there's not an inherent level of cool, right? Yeah, because it, it you know if you, if you shoot it as a movie, well, you can just put Woody Harrelson and Matthew McConaughey in it and it'll be cool. Yeah, yeah, you know, or you can put Colin Farrell in it and be <laughs> less cool. <laughs> no you, uh, shots fired at colin farrell no. I, I, lo- I, I love you colin you know you know you're my man i'm just on a podcast don't send me angry emails
0: <laughs> you never but, you never ever watched true detective then i i take it that's that that didn't come from any place of being a true detective fan and being disappointed i'm sure
1: no i just, I, I just put him out of a hat because i think about colin farrell every time about this hour you know yeah. like, oh it's colin farrell time hey think about it. <laughs> total recall here we go yeah so you know in, in film you've got that that advantage to kind of make that work in comics you don't have unless you're working on like superhero books you really don't have inherent celebrity yeah right? you know um so the artist has to figure out a way to make the normal iconic and isaac has done a, a really phenomenal job of approaching that and executing that stuff uh the book got picked up uh by hulu um for a television series we're oh. still like in the very early stages of seeing if all that's going to go down. But, um, a large part of why that happened is his artwork is the feel of it. You know, is, is the texture, uh, the way he draws Eden, Wyoming and makes it this living and breathing pace. It plays, it's really, he's really a brilliant, brilliant guy at it. Um, so, you know, there's always a way to kind of cheat in the the value and try to make yeah. make it more than just the sum of its parts, and that's a big thing for me. I know it's a big thing for Isaac. It's a huge thing for Nelson and Romulus. Nelson, who is now uh, also On drawing Luke Cage, Luke Cage yeah. for Marvel by David Walker, so who, go pick that up. Is issue one.
0: So is he still continuing to do Romulus while
1: he's doing that? We're going. We, we gotta squeeze it in, right? Wow. Yeah. So we're gonna we might we might end up doing like four issue blocks of mm. this thing. Yeah. You know you know how it works. Like yep. you do like maybe a couple trades a year or something, you know, take a break. Yeah. Yeah. Like we're definitely trying to, uh, to continue to do it. Um, I know he's got some of issue five already done. Um, so we're definitely going to move forward. It Mm. just might be a little slower than we'd initially planned because he's working, uh, on Luke Cage now, which is great. His issue is amazing. Go pick that up. It's a great book.
0: Yeah, no, it's... And I I actually... I was going to say is that your your book was uh, my first exposure to him. Like, on in Romulus, I, I'm reading Romulus. I'm like, wow, this guy... And, I mean, Top Cow does have a tendency to discover just incredible artists, you know, out of nowhere, like Kenneth Rocafort and, you know, I mean, Jeremy Hahn, right. like, a lot of people going back. Um, but I, I'm reading Romulus. I'm like, damn, like, this guy is so good. I'm, I'm... I was just, like, reading it, like, how have I not heard of this guy before? And then... You know, like, two months later, all of a sudden, it's like, Luke Cage, number one, David Walker, and and Nelson Blake. I'm like, oh, well, there we go.
1: (laughs) Yeah, like, I I joke with him, uh, uh, I call Nelson Brie Larson, right? (laughs) Uh, And so, Romulus is kind of like Short Term 12. Short Term 12 was this independent film that Brie was in that, like, not a huge amount of people saw, but everyone who saw it loved it and loved her in it. Mm -hmm. And then she becomes Brie Larson, and then everyone goes back and watches Short Term 12. Yeah. So... You know, it's I'm really happy that he's also working on Luke Cage because that means more people are going to read Romulus. Yep. No, exactly. (laughs) That's works out for me. You know. Yeah. Like, hey, you know, you get done with that, you go pick this one up. It's the same art. Check it out.
0: Well, and that's Um, and that's the cool thing about comics is you know, and and like you know, it goes back to like that Kirkman manifesto a few years ago and stuff, talking about how you know the the best way to thrive as a creator in uh, you know the modern landscape of comics is to kind of you know start out in your creator own stuff move over into the big two for a little while, enough to give people a nice flavor and a taste of what you've got and get them really, you know, uh, wanting to itch that or scratch that itch and then going back into your creative projects and sort of bringing them back over into the stuff that you own. Um,
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Romulus has opened up uh, some other opportunities for me. I can't really say what they are specifically, but mm -hmm. you'll be seeing me do something of the same thing um, relatively soon, right? Where... You do, an, you do your own book. It kind of demonstrates what you're able to do. Mm-hmm. You've got uh, a pretty cool little cult audience built around the book that, you know, is really awesome. You try to do the best thing you can for them. And then you get, you know, look-sees from the bigger places and you wind up doing like um, a uh, big two thing, you yeah. know, before too long. So I can't get into details on what it is because <laughs> they actually will send someone in a crow mask and a shotgun. <laughs> well, it'll be a Mickey Mouse I, mask. Yeah, but yeah, I'm doing something <laughs> really, really cool right now that I am incredibly excited about. Um, everyone will be excited to hear it when I can announce it. Um, oh, and uh, it should open me up to you know some more readers and hopefully lead them back to some of my original work.
0: We'll uh, we'll definitely have to to pull you back on for a bit uh, when you're able to. Oh yeah, the
1: moment it. I can talk about it, I'll be back on to talk about it.
0: <laughs> Hell yeah. Um, and I I did want to mention uh in Romulus I think it was number two. Uh, mm. in, in the back of that issue, you had a letter from JFK to Robert Kennedy. Uh,
1: oh, right. Yeah, t- yeah, yeah,
0: Talk about that and what, what inspired that letter or kind of where that came from in your head.
1: Well, you know, it's it, the letter is fiction, by the way. It's yeah. not a real letter. <laughs> um, but it, it, the reality is uh, that was very concerned about uh, forces within the government that could be working against the president. And President Kennedy was also kind of, concerned. Mm -hmm. Um, Before his assassination, he did have some correspondence with people um, wondering if the CIA was really on his side, Mm -hmm. Um, wondering if the FBI and Hoover were really working, you know, not only, you know, with him, but for the good of the country and not their own good. So he did have some suspicions about conspiracy, you know, as it were, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, thinking about the military industrial complex and, and the rest of it. Once Kennedy was assassinated, John Kennedy, mm-hmm. Robert Kennedy took an even deeper interest in all that. You know, it's it's pretty common knowledge that Robert Kennedy never thought that Oswald acted alone.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Right? He just didn't believe that. Yeah. Um, and to be frank, I don't believe it either.
0: No. It, like, um, especially with the benefit of hindsight, like, it, it just doesn't make sense.
1: I'm not saying Oswald didn't take the shot. I You know, I'm not saying that there yeah, was yeah. a... You know a Frenchman in the grassy knoll or something. <laughs> um there could have been, I don't know. But it's it's just too pat that this guy shoots the president, another guy shoots that guy, mm-hmm. that guy goes to prison and dies in prison without really telling his story. Mm-hmm. Like it's it 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 stinks of mafia. Yeah. It stinks of clandestine, right? Um mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I wanted to put something in there that sort of pointed to the scope of the Order of Romulus, which is like the preeminent dark secret society of of the book Romulus, to the presence of the Order of Romulus throughout history before the timeline of our main character. You know, the idea that you would be able to see their works through these major historical events if you looked close enough. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I always dug stuff like that growing up. I remember when I was a kid, I saw Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and for about six months, I wanted to find the Holy Grail. (laughs) So I did all this research um, about the Holy Grail, you know, Parsifal and the Fisher King and the Songraal and the whole thing. I read a book called Holy Blood, Holy Grail, which is an awesome read if you're into that kind of nutty, weird, esoteric stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. and it just kind of set off little fires in my in my head, like little firework explosions of possibilities and history and alternate history and the rest of it. The fun, funny thing is, Holy Blood, Holy Grail has everything that Dan Brown has ever done. <laughs> so I remember like, oh, you got to read The Da Vinci Code. And I read it and I was like, man, I read this when I was 12. Like, this <laughs> is it. I know all about Mary Magdalene and the bloodline. This is nothing. <laughs> but, yeah, this is just one man. This is ah, forget about that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I I've I've always been interested in just the kind of the weird, you know, kind of dark corners of history. Um, and with Kennedy especially, I just uh, obviously I didn't live through that moment, but it's just one of those things that is recent enough history that it's still kind of chilling and terrifying Mm -hmm. to think of. Yeah. You know, like most people don't know, they never found Kennedy's brain. Yeah. Right? Like that's not something most people know. Like somehow they lost JFK's brain. (laughs) Right? And you start thinking to yourself, how do you lose the brain of the president of the United States?
0: Yeah. Like, especially when, I mean, you know where it is roughly, you know what I mean? Like, it's not not that hard to track it down.
1: We lost it, they didn't. Yeah, right? exactly. Exactly. And you start thinking like, well, why would you not have a brain? Well, you probably wouldn't have a brain because a brain could tell you pretty specific details about bullet trajectory, even back <laughs> in the 60s. Uh-huh. Right? So if you wanted to have some trouble with determining where a bullet came from, uh, you know, the removing the brain of a headshot would be a pretty good way to do that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So now you look at that, you're like, well, how is this okay? How is it okay that they lost JFK's brain and <laughs> – And that just Lyndon Johnson was fine with that. Everybody Hoover was fine with that. Just moving on, eternal flame. Here we go. Stay in Vietnam. I don't. I you know. So like those things are hard to kind of put to bed in in you know a little bit. And um, uh, I you know I I think that's where a lot of Romulus comes from is just the quiet sense that look. Do I believe that there is a single secret society that is pulling the strings and everything? No. Do I believe that society is largely comprised of powerful oligarchies that work from the shadows to their own ends? Sure. Mm -hmm. Do they work against each other? Probably. Um, And do they all want to exploit us? Most likely. Right? (laughs) So, uh, you know, that's – I mean, you know, I'm not trying to get political, but if you take a look at the the recent budget that came out of the House, it's insane. It's an insane document of – just stripping this away, stripping that away, stripping that away. It's bananas. The yeah. CBO score and the health care bill, 23 million people will get kicked off of health insurance. Why? Because they want to. Yep. Because they want to. You know, because c- of national debt. National debt that no one is really going to enforce us to pay back. Mm-hmm. So it's – yes, you don't want the country to run into too much debt for sure. But at the same time, it's not debt like you bought a car you can't afford and they're coming to take it debt. Yeah. It's – it's a it's a far more you know complex thing. I mean, Nixon removed us from the gold standard. Yeah. Well, why? Who knows why? Yeah. Terrible idea. So now we have fiat currency that doesn't actually have any real monetary value.
0: Yeah. Things things don't mean anything. Like it's it's all it's all made up at this point. The value it's the- all
1: made up. Like all <laughs> the, like the you know you, you you know look at the money in your bank account that mm-hmm. is just made up. Yeah. You know, the fact that if everyone who has their money in Bank of America. Took their money out. They couldn't all get their money out because there's not actually that much money in Bank of America.
0: Yep. No. Exactly. And that, like, that's the thing. I was actually. I mean, it's a thing that's kind of been in my head for a while. But yesterday, I was writing something, and it was like really just like boiling at the surface in my mind. You know what I mean? Just thinking about the fact that like literally, like that that the, there's nothing behind the number you see in the app on your phone. You know what I mean? Like that it could right. somebody could change it to a zero, and that. You know that th- th- that could just happen, and you would all of a sudden have zero money, like just from somebody changing something on a keyboard.
1: Uh, oh man, like I get I get paid um uh, digitally a lot, yeah. Uh, because a lot of companies like to pay you just with direct deposit, and it's terrifying. Yeah, it's like you check your you check your balance, you go to bed, and you wake up, and there's more money there, but it's it's just a number. It's just a number. Yep. <laughs> that exists. Which it's so. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and it, it, like it also means not only could you be like could you lose all your money at once but like theoretically speaking you could make a lot of money without actually having to make any money you know what i mean like you don't have to you don't have to uh counterfeit you know bills and stuff like that you can just you know if you're if you're a very wealthy and influential person already or whatever like theoretically speaking if you're a writer or a storyteller wanting to tell a story theoretically speaking uh you could just Make the number in that bank account bigger, you know, if you're if you're connected in that way. Like
1: Well yeah, I mean that's that's really the secret, uh, among like the super wealthy is mm-hmm. they create money out of nothing. Yeah. And they and don't as even As long have... as yeah, it's like a Ponzi scheme that they all live with, and as long as no as long as all the parties like burn you made off. Mm-hmm. As long as all of the parties don't ask for their money at the same time, you get away with it. Yep. Um and yeah, it's so I think a lot about just like kind of the fragile assumptions that a lot of society is built on. I don't think people genuinely understand how close to Mad Max we got in 2008. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, it was pretty bad. Like, I, I had friends of mine that are in finance because, you know, I went to NYU, so I know some people in the market. Of course. Um, and they were telling me during this, they were like, listen, this could get apocalyptically bad. Like yeah. – if something drastic isn't done you're looking at the end of of you know modern life as we know it basically mm-hmm. well, because now- there won't be any liquid to make any that means like food isn't coming in you know yeah. like water isn't happening like crazy crazy stuff
0: that was the thing about it is like in you know in in that situation and it you know back in 2008 2009 like these these banks and these people like they essentially have the country in a catch 22 and have them by the balls where it's like look if we go down, you're all you're all completely screwed. Like there's you you can't live without us because we essentially own everything.
1: Yeah, uh, it's like holding on to the Joker when he's dangling over a ledge, but he's the only one that knows where Harvey Dent is. Exactly, exactly. You know, <laughs> so you're just like, I guess I'll pull you up. Yeah, <laughs> right. Like that's that's the thing. It's it's we're so intertwined with this nonsense mm-hmm. that um. There's no way to extricate ourselves, and we didn't solve the problem in 2008. No. We, we just staved it off for like another go-round at some point, yep. um,
0: until it all comes to a head again.
1: Yeah, so you know, like, it, it, so the Kennedy thing is just kind of part of all of that stuff. I, I um, as not just a, a f- point of tragedy, but maybe it was um, a point on a continuum. You know we look at the we look at the kennedy assassination and its idea of conspiracy kind of solely around the event of the assassination itself mm-hmm. we don't really think about it in terms of is that just an element of is that is that like part of a larger plan yeah is there was there a macro thing like what happened after he was killed right like what do we stay in what do we what do we get out of um where did the money go how did the nation change like you know, I, I think thinking about these events not just as like, ooh, that's a really flashpoint of spooky stuff, but maybe we're marching towards a place somewhere. Where? I don't know. We're certainly getting away from the ownership society, if you've noticed. Yeah. Like we're, we're moving into a subscription-based society.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: Right? Like that's a shift. Um, that puts a lot of power into the hands of corporations and mm-hmm. you know, out of the people who buy things, the consumers. Yeah. You know, the uh, this idea of net neutrality. Um, being contested now—that's oh. kind of a terrifying thought.
0: That that um, ruling the other day—that like, I—it's it, ridiculous to me that it's it's a thing that's happening.
1: Like, it's just, it's just happening right now. And people just are, are are just kind of unaware, you know. I mean, they don't. Um, I, I think ultimately, especially in America, I think Americans ultimately want to believe in the system enough, mm-hmm. as much as we're cowboys and revolutionaries and protesters and what have you. There's a part of Americans that want to believe that somebody will make it all right. Yeah. They don't like to kind of take the full reins of responsibility. Part of that is our history isn't like that. You know, I mean we had a civil war, it's true, mm-hmm. but we're not Europe. You know, we're not we're not used to dictators, we're not used to people taking us over and marching across our our you know our borders and all that. Yeah, it's true. These aren't things that Americans have have come to terms with. If you look at like Angela Merkel, mm-hmm. Angela Merkel knows what happens when you do nothing. <laughs> you know like that's that's the thing like you don't live in germany and not know what happens when you don't do anything yeah so there's a reason why Oracle always gives trump the side eye right yeah not because she thinks trump is hitler no but she recognizes that if you let that guy get away with it then the next guy is yep. actually good at it
0: Yep. right the guy who has uh any hint of subtlety or or planning at all yeah
1: so I, you know, I, so you look at that, and you know, and this isn't like a right-left thing. I'm not being Democrat or Republican about this, but if you look at a guy who's kind of exposing what our tolerance mm-hmm. is, like how tolerant are we going to be? That he just said yesterday that ISIS were a bunch of losers. Yeah, like that was that was the you know. So it's and he's it's like it's not, and removing the politics from it. It's more just a general question of uh, how long are we going to define deviance down, right? Yep. Yep. You know, how, how, why are we always rushing to make something normal? A financial collapse is not normal, Mm-mm. right? We should, we should still be doing an autopsy on why that happened. Oh you yeah. You know, like that's not a normal thing. Like, and, and I think that's honestly the thing that's in the most uh, danger now. That's the thing that frightens me the most is we have a remarkable capacity to make the abnormal normal because to not make it, normal requires us be responsible for changing it in some way.
0: Mm-hmm. Right? No, absolutely. It's,
1: it's like when I talked to, I talked to friends of mine in Missouri, you know, uh, about this whole Russian conspiracy thing, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And it's, even though there's all this smoke and I, I, don't know, like, I'm not saying that, you know, Trump is a like Manchurian candidate or whatever it is. I <laughs> honestly, I think he did. He, I think he got the wrong, the wrong money from the wrong Dimitri and he's trying to cover it all up. That's just my guess. <laughs> I, you know, I think it's probably like a small thing that he's making bigger because he keeps trying to cover it up. Yeah. But you know, it, it's remarkable how few people like, not few people, but how difficult it is for people to get to the place where they want to do something. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, it's like, well, maybe if he did something, then, you know, I guess someone will take care of it. Well, sometimes it's someone is us. Yeah. You know, it's us calling our reps and us being active, you know, like it's, People have to step up and do things, otherwise you're going to lose your free internet. Yeah, you know, you're just gonna you're going to lose that. Otherwise, you're going to lose, you know, your your access to healthcare or education, mm-hmm. um, you know, or or any sort of things, you know. And once they get taken from you, we tend to adapt to the loss rather than like try to you know fight keep back it against fulfilling. it. Yeah, yeah, it, it's wild. So those are the kind of things that kind of Romulus is all about.
0: That yeah, and it's true. I mean, like it it does. It does, more than anything, make me scared for the next person after Trump more than it does make me scared for Trump. Because there are are politicians and there are people who are hungry for power watching this and going, oh,
1: that's... I can do that a little better.
0: Yeah, exactly. And they're going, oh, this is the limit to, you know, or like, this is not not even touched the limit yet of what the people will put up with and what they will tolerate and what they will sit back and watch happen. And that's from somebody who's just letting it all fly out there without even really covering much of it up like with with just saying stuff and and you know spouting out whatever pops into his head like me the guy who's hungry for power and knows exactly how to to play people sociopathically and how to tell a lie and weave you know something intricate like it it, it makes for a very scary uh uh future
1: <laughs> yeah you know you're absolutely right jason i mean you know the the trump's lack of discipline mm-hmm might be the firewall against you know that whole thing getting way too out of control right because he'll he's he's the kind of player that's probably going to cough up the ball at some point you know he's like he's like venus williams he's probably going to choke
0: yeah the weight gets Um, too much eventually
1: and you know like the wrong thing will come out and thing but yeah there are people out there who i mean i you know i don't think trump is an evil person i just think he's kind of like a you know undisciplined sort of dude (laughs) yeah um but there are genuinely evil people mm-hmm. who who witness that and say, "Well, he would get away with twice as much if he were just, you know, one degree more disciplined, just yeah. one degree more articulate, less of a buffoon." Yep. You know, like, and that's the the thing that can be really, really terrifying. And you know, it, it, we, we we just make allowances for it. Mm-hmm. We wouldn't let a high school senior talk like Trump talks.
0: <laughs> yeah. My mom you couldn't slap get into a college silly.
1: answering questions like that. Yeah. Right? you have to be articulate. Like the man turns, you know, uh, it, the thing that then that really bothers me about him, just uh, as the, some nerdy writer thing. Mm-hmm. He always turns adjectives into nouns in Ugh. his sentences, yes. and then uses them as direct objects, and it drives me up a wall. <laughs> I know. You're going so to good. get very good with the cyber.
2: You're I going know. To stop
1: the cyber. It's like that's an adjective. Yeah, it is not a noun. <laughs> I know. I know when like
0: that, that was the the first time that it legitimately made me scream when I heard it. Like, cause every time I see something that he says, like it's, it's yeah. That, that writer aspect, that sort of like every level of like English education you've had that just screams in your head. Like that's wrong. That's just wrong. Like
1: a noun after that (laughs) word. I just want to say this whole business with the Russian is (laughs) a fake. It's like noun, noun. Like it's, oh, it just, it, it, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> crushes me jason i it's, it's like i you have to know better than what you're doing you have to yeah um,
0: normally you want the yeah. president to be like a model of of you know american uh, ingenuity and education and and
1: well theoretically um, right i mean theoretically everyone should be comfortable saying you want your child to grow up to be like the president yeah that i don't think that's a big reach i don't think that's yeah, like no. me being naive no right? not at like, all you kind of want the president to have mostly admirable qualities. Yeah. You know, I don't know where we are right now. It's, it's, just, weird. it's, it's a weird thing. So, so yeah. So like those things, you know, are like the price of things, you know, it, it, even just getting used to things is costing more and being mm-hmm. less is less good. Yeah. You know, like we're sort of used to things not working now.
0: Yeah. We it's kind okay. of are. Everything's dysfunctional. Right? Yeah.
1: We're used to weird, like two year cycles on things when you used to be able to hold something for five or six years. So yeah. all when you combine all of these things together, you can see that there might be an overall march to reduce the power and the agency of the average person in the world. Yeah. And that's really what Romulus is about. It's about, you know, how do you wage war against that when you're just one person um against a, a global syndicate of people. Mm-hmm. And and you have to do that just person by person, you know. Every mind you can change, everyone you can, you know, kind of tune in to the, the true frequency of what's happening. And so, yeah, like the, those are the things that um, compel me, you know, in general uh, about storytelling. Uh, and so, if someone reads an issue of Romulus and decides to look up Kennedy they hadn't before, I feel mm-hmm. good.
0: No, yeah, I, I I love it. Um, and I I know we're uh, we're we're running up on your time here, so I wanted to. Oh yeah, right
1: t- on. I haven't looked at the clock. I'm just sitting on my floor, and, like, you know, <laughs> in like full lotus posture, having this conversation.
0: I love it, man. Um, so I wanted to just touch on Eden's Fall, uh, real quick, and sure. then uh, just ask you, you know, a few like kind of basic lightning round questions that we usually do at the end. Um, of course. But tell me about Eden's Fall. I mean, it's basically, uh, and I mean, I guess you'll you'll probably be able to explain it, uh, uh better than I could. But it's really a crossover between, you know, uh, a bunch yeah, of the well, major so- Top Cow titles.
1: So um, uh, uh, some people read kind of one or two of these books and don't realize they're all in the same universe. So Mm
2: -hmm.
1: uh, Matt has created what I I call the Hawkinsverse, and (laughs) in it are The Tithe, which is an FBI book about uh, terrorism, domestic terrorism. And uh, Think Tank is a book about DARPA Mm -hmm. uh, and the the military application of science and, and how that weighs on the soul of a genius caught in the center of that web. Yeah. And Postal is a book about kind of you know crime and Americana, uh, and kind of the outlaw nature of America that Americans don't like to admit, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so these books all exist in the same universe. And Matt had this idea about taking some characters from The Tithe and Think Tank and putting them into Postal. And I said, well, why don't we you know think about doing that as a separate thing? Yeah. Because I've got kind of intricate plotting plans on Postal, and I don't want to just walk through one of your characters and have that not really serve. I'm sure
0: yeah. the
1: fans of that character wouldn't appreciate it, and the fans of Postal probably wouldn't get what I was doing. Of course. So he dug that and you know, kind of came up with this kind of idea for a story. He's like, hey, do you want to work on this with me? And I was like, yeah, yeah, we can do something as long as I get to be really brutal. <laughs> uh, well, because, you know, look, I, I try to serve serve the fan base, right? I, I And if there's something that people who follow Postal understand is mm-hmm. that Postal does not hold, like, you know, there's no holds barred.
2: There. Yeah.
1: Like, Postal doesn't hold back, man. Postal will go there and will build a house there. Mm-hmm. So I, I I wanted to make sure that we could take it to that, that place. Uh, and uh, Matt was cool with that. So Eden's Fall is a three-issue miniseries um, about a villain from the tithe, kind of this reprehensible uh, character, this sociopath, um, who escapes the heroes of the tithe and winds up in Eden, Wyoming mm-hmm. uh, to start over to you know witness protection program in essence. He's put there by a corrupt senator who can pull some strings to make that happen. Uh, well, one of the FBI agents from the Tithe uh, thinks that's a terrible idea, mm-hmm. and so he's going to go off the reservation and into Eden to find out what goes on with this guy and a bunch of intense things happen, you know, after, after (laughs) he makes that choice. Right. Yes. Um, So, yeah, so we look at that as kind of like our kind of ode to Michael Mann, you know, Mm, the the, kind of the hard driven character sort of fiction. And it's, it's an interesting exercise because it takes these kind of metropolitan characters and throws them into the rural um, ultimate, violence of of the the postal universe and I, I think it um it it does a pretty neat thing the arts by Attilio rojo again who's mm-hmm. really brilliant he's really visceral attilio has yeah. got a very you know kind of uh um vivid experiential style to his work yeah it's and,
0: it's a yeah. it's a cool style like it it, it was uh like when I when I first started reading uh, Eden's Fall because it was actually the the first book that I had read by Rojo, um, I like like it took a second to get used to the art style, uh, but once I did, I was like, man, this is like kind of mind-blowingly good in a lot of ways, and it's it's so different from really most other art styles that are uh, kind of on the forefront today.
1: Yeah, you know, he he just kind of uh, his 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 dial goes up to eleven, you know, yeah. and so um, you respond. You know, with that in the script, I, I tend to write knowing who's going to draw the thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, sort of a, a way I execute things. Yeah. So, yeah, Eden's Fall is 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 that, and actually, you know, you can just jump into it without having read any of the series. The way we've built it, I mean, there's a little thing at the beginning to kind of give you an idea of what's going on. But
2: yeah, the,
1: the characters in in all three books are so archetypal mm-hmm. that you know pretty quickly what kind of you know, world and dynamic you're, you're getting into. Um, so yeah, it's a three issue thing. I think it's collected in trade form. Um, or it's part of a trade or something. I have to check that out. I'm not sure. Uh, but it is, it's, it's out there. It's, it's certainly available. Um, certainly available digitally in issues. If you want to pick it up and read it that way, it looks beautiful on the iPad pro.
0: Yeah, no, Um, it's a, it's a, that, I mean, that's, that's how I picked it up and I, I freaking loved it. And I mean, to, to anyone who hasn't read any of the, the books in this universe, whether it's from, from Matt or from Brian, uh, they, like, you, you absolutely could read Eden's Fall without reading any of them. Or especially like if you've read one of them, I think that it's fine. Like you said, there's basically the first two pages give everything you need to know about the world in a pretty concise and, and, uh, I guess kind of just a fluid way.
1: Yeah, you know the influences were like Fargo, um, TV series and and the film True Detective, you yeah. know uh, uh, Twin Peaks, all those things. You know Heat yeah. is you know makes an appearance I think in there influence wise. I watch that movie once a week. I love so, Heat, it's so good. Yeah, it's it brilliant, Michael Mann's so good. Yeah, um, but yeah, so that's what Eden's Fall is. It's a it's a Great way to jump in. And if you dig any of those worlds, then just go find the other ones. You know, go pick up the Tithe and go pick up Postal and, you know, and Think Tank and, you know, kind of whatever uh, kind of one of those doorways you think you'd want to walk through. There's a lot of content waiting for you.
0: Hell yeah. Um, All right. So now we'll just jump into a quick lightning round and just kind of get some uh, some fun answers from you. Obviously, like there's I have a ton more of like self-serving, like comic book writer oriented questions uh, for you, but we can save those for another time um sure. but uh
1: for I'm, the lo- I'm happy to, to to do a craft podcast oh, too if you'd dude. like to at one point just, that's you know, we'll schedule it out and then we can just talk all craft
0: absolutely i'm i'm a craft nerd i mean obviously like with you know writing con- like i'm working on my first comic right now and me and my artist we keep oh, awesome. kind of going for back and forth on on all these different ideas and it's always fun like that that's the the self-serving aspect of this podcast is like every uh, every interview i can kind of just like w- you know weasel in a couple of really self-serving questions about uh the nature of writing comics
1: oh yeah for sure like i love talking craft you know um so anytime
0: yeah we'll schedule that out for sure um okay so first off like let's let's say tomorrow elon musk asked you if you if uh you'd be willing to join the mission to mars would you do it no (laughs) uh if you lived in the star trek universe would you join starfleet
1: maybe (laughs) okay
0: uh when and where would you time travel uh if you could go anywhere any place for just 10 minutes anytime?
1: Uh a future where Natalie Dormer really wanted to talk to a bald black guy.
0: <laughs> I like it. I like it.
1: And I would be the first one she sees. <laughs>
0: That's true. There are, a lot of, there are a lot of bald black guys. Out there. I mean, there are a lot of bald uh, you know, guys like, out there, really.
1: You don't just want to go there and then find out that, like, you know, some basketball player or yeah. something there beat you to it. Like, you want to be the first one. Yeah. You know? Like, that's the whole thing. <laughs> uh,
0: uh, I guess this one would... Uh, I, I'll save... There's another question in here I'll save for another time because it'll probably uh, uh, require a longer answer. Um, where have you wanted to travel but haven't gotten the opportunity to yet? Oh, Great Britain. Okay. Right on. Uh, is there a specific place in Great Britain you want to see, or is there just a lot of places?
1: Uh, well, specifically, um, uh, Whitechapel.
0: Mm. Uh,
1: you know, Even though like it's very different now than it used to be, it's also got the Jack the River history, and I've always been curious about doing a walking tour and seeing what was going on there.
0: Hell yeah. Um, where's your favorite place that you've been already?
1: Ooh, I was in Bangkok for... Uh, I worked on an animated project there, and I really dug that city. It's incredibly like vibrant. It's like living inside of an action movie or something. If you've seen that not great movie um the Chris Hemsworth Michael Mann film like oh. Hat, <laughs> Yeah. It's like living inside that movie. Uh so if you've ever wanted to be inside of an action movie, uh uh-huh. go to Bangkok.
0: Okay. That's I that's awesome. I I'm I'm like compiling a life uh list of of places to travel, so I'll add it to the list it's
1: incredibly um, hot though so wear shorts
0: <laughs> sounds good I'm, I'm originally from arizona so i, I hopefully oh, i'll be able to handle you, it
1: yeah the humidity is like 400 percent there
0: Cool. Jeez. okay yeah i'll have <laughs> yeah. to adjust
1: <laughs> yeah it's a, a equator man Jeez. yeah that's <laughs> right, right the equator. that's a point
0: that's a good point um what was the film that impacted young brian hill the most
1: Ooh. uh probably star wars
0: star wars right on uh which star wars the original star wars
1: and the Empire Strikes Back.
0: Empire Strikes Back. Okay, are you? Is that is that your top over uh, over Star Wars one or Star Wars A New Hope? I guess.
1: It's, I love Star Wars, but The Empire Strikes Back changed me.
0: Okay,
1: you know it. It, it taught me that um, you got to be careful about who you hate because they might not be what you think they are.
0: Mm. That's that is a good message to get from that. I like that a lot. Um, what is the uh, the film that's impacted adult Brian the most? Blade Runner. Okay. I like it. Are you excited for twenty forty nine? or Are you kind of nervous? Uh,
1: it looks like an action movie, and that's not what Blade Runner is. You're very right I'm, about that. I, I want to see it, but uh, you know, like I don't see Blade Runner for explosions and and stuff. Like I see Blade Runner for like thoughtful, kind of meditative sci-fi. I think it worked better as a television series. But okay. Um, I'm going you know, Denis Villeneuve is a brilliant filmmaker. Maybe that's just the trailer that was cut. I'm gonna, yeah. give it time. I wish they would let Harrison Ford like wear a costume and not just the clothes he wears <laughs> normally, because that looks really weird. He's like, yeah. he's like, show, like, is he in a rehearsal? Like, he's just wearing like a Gap t-shirt. Like, I don't.
0: <laughs> I think I think that might be in his contract now. He's just like, just let me show up to set, no makeup. Listen, no know,
1: I'll, I'll do the movie, but I'm only gonna wear a Gap t-shirt movie a t-shirt that one gray, the gray one Use a computer make it a different color if you want in the computer uh yeah um i i don't know man i don't know i don't know why he's wearing the the gap t-shirt man yeah it's that, that looks really weird <laughs> <laughs> i just have to say that i think to say that like i'm sorry, I'm some... sorry man. it looks really weird to me
0: he looks out of place in a t-shirt for sure
1: yeah, yeah it was just church coat man come on rick decker put yep. him in a sweater come on
0: exactly um you mentioned and this is something that we'll get into another time but you mentioned gaming i just want to know what's your favorite video game to play right now
1: right now i'm playing injustice 2 on the ps4 uh and i'm having a ball um fighting with wonder woman
0: i need to i need to get that game so bad oh
1: it's so good
0: (laughs) i loved the first injustice especially so good it's also like, it's such a good game to just like have friends over and like play for a while. You know, like that's, that's the thing that I've been missing from gaming for a long time is the social experience.
1: And you don't even have to fight. I mean, you can fight people online if you want to, but there's also so much single player content in this one. Like you can, there's hours and hours of stuff to do without even have to play someone online. So if you're not used to playing fighting games and you don't worry about that, just pick it up. It's great.
0: Awesome. I, I can't wait. Um, okay. Just like three more questions for you. Uh, what was the first script you ever wrote about
1: first script I wrote about was a superhero movie uh it was called Republic (laughs) City hell yeah and it was uh about a mass vigilante going up against a uh a criminal billionaire stop me if you heard that one before
0: (laughs) hey man you know sometimes that's especially as a young writer it's like writing writing familiar tropes I think is the best way for a young writer to learn
1: oh I was deeply invested into it bad as it was
0: hell yeah um and uh, okay, so this and this is kind of a, a similar question to one I asked before, but uh, the comic book that impacted Young Brian the most.
1: Oh well, I mean the Batman comic has said as part of it, but yeah, gosh, um, young me. says I can't remember the name of that issue, I'm going to go with Batman: The Dark Knight Returns.
0: Okay, right on. Because
1: I remember, I remember like you know, sitting in the bed, laying on the bed, reading a comic book, and just wondering how any of this was possible. Right? Yeah. It's like every page of that thing was an explosion, and I I can still remember like the the way the room smelled when I was reading that thing.
0: <laughs> wow, and I, I I was actually curious about that because I do I do see a lot of Frank Miller influence in some of your writing. Like there are there are pages... oh thank you,
1: <laughs> yeah, no very very few people actually pick up on the Frank Miller. Like I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> no I, no problem. I like I
1: made a deliberate attempt, especially in Romulus, yeah. to kind of you know, dude echo the Frank Miller style and no one really gets that but you get it and I... you're awesome gold star for you
0: <laughs> that was like that was one of the first things I noticed with the like the internal monologue and not not just the internal monologue but the way that the internal monologue was kind of structured uh, right. reminded me so much of, of Frank Miller and especially Frank Miller Batman but I mean he did a lot with oh, yeah a lot I
1: mean of when just. I was looking at Romulus Nelson and I definitely talked about Dark Knight Returns mean, we also talked a lot about Electra Assassin oh yeah uh, so if you haven't you haven't tracked out guys, you should definitely check out Electro Assassins. Bill Sienkiewicz and Frank yeah. Miller. It's like this fever kind of acid trip thing, but oh. it's, it's awesome. It's amazing.
0: That's Yeah, that might be the best work that Sienkiewicz ever did. Um,
1: I think it's just it this amazing, amazing, amazing thing. Yeah, it was a big influence on Romulus.
0: Yeah, I, I, I can see that now, actually. Um, and, uh, okay, and then last question, the comic that has uh, impacted adult Brian the most.
1: Oh! Okay, there's an issue of Scalped mm-hmm. and gosh i i want to say it's either 74 or 77 it's a it's a self-contained story about this couple on the reservation who is starving and how they're trying to uh just find food to eat basically it's like something like a it's like a bittersweet love story mm-hmm. and i cried the first time i read it um because jason wow. aaron had done such a, a such a powerful job with it i think it's one of the best issues of a comic book ever created honestly yeah. Wow. Um, I want to say it's like scalp seventy-seven, but don't quote me. It's in the seventies. Okay. Um, and and check it out. Uh, it is amazing. Like I, it's you know, I I can't talk enough about that issue. That issue is is brilliant. <laughs>
0: awesome. Well, I mean that that about does it, Brian Hill. You've you've been more than gracious with your time, with your information, with your your uh, willingness to be as as forthcoming and verbose uh, with your answers as possible. I love it. Obviously, we will need to get you on uh, again for a follow-up in the future, um, but let the people know where they can find you online, where they can find your you know, comics, what to look for, all that.
1: Oh, absolutely. So um, I don't really do Facebook that much uh, because you guys don't need to be talking to a bunch of my old girlfriends, neither does my <laughs> wife. But I do do Twitter a lot. So my Twitter account is at Brian Edward Hill. That's my name, Brian with a Y. Why? Because we like you. (laughs) Uh, And that's usually where I talk to a bunch of people. I keep my DMs open, uh, actually. So anyone can DM me there. Sometimes if they ask me a question that I think other Twitter followers would like to hear an answer to, I will kind of repost the question and keep it anonymous if you'd like me to. Um, That's probably the best place to find me. Uh, You know, my books are postal romulus Uh, i have an aphrodite 5 miniseries coming up very shortly um i've got some other stuff along the way i kind of update everything on my twitter and uh i wrote the third season i was in the writer's room on ash versus evil dead oh awesome i didn't know that yeah that'll be um uh launching in the fall i think uh i'm episode 308 so look for the eighth episode of that season that's me yeah And uh, I also wrote a terrible Dolph Lundgren movie called The Russian Specialist, which is likely on Amazon if you want to punish yourself.
0: Hell yeah. That's awesome, man. Um, Well, sweet. Hey, thank you so much. And then uh, for the listeners, you can find the show uh, at Savage Land Pod on Twitter and Savage Land Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, Go and buy and support Brian's stuff. Pre-order your comics from your comic book store. That is the best way that you can possibly keep your favorite series alive. Uh, keep bringing those reviews and ratings on iTunes coming. We greatly appreciate it, and that is the best way you can keep us alive. Um, Brian, send the people off with whatever uh, whatever knowledge you'd like to give them.
1: Hmm. Well, there's no such thing as failing unless you stop.
0: Love it. And uh, tune in next week for the Savage Land.